What's going on, friends and family? Thank you so much for tuning into Every Day is a Saturday with your host, me, myself, and I, Brian Roof. Hey, guys, another great day, another great interview. But before we get into the next interview, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with Every Day is a Saturday. Uh, the last show I'm going to have is going to be the Monday after Veterans Day. So that is going to be the last time I drop an episode for Every Day is a Saturday, USMC Veteran. And then we'll go ahead and kick it back up January 9th of the next year for season two. And that will basically be when I started for this year. My I started the podcast was January 9th of this year. So we'll go ahead and kick up the season two, uh, January 9th next year, little break. You know what I mean? Uh, still be doing some, uh, interviews and all that stuff like that. Not going to stop any of that. Just not going to be releasing any episodes and then, uh, kind of gear things up for, uh, season two, uh, change things up just a little bit, not very drastic or anything like that, but, uh, let's go ahead and not, keep my next guest waiting anymore this guy right here is an amazing guest i'm excited to have him on he served his country proud for 36 years reaching the rank of major general of the united states army before retiring may 2015th he is a combat veteran bipolar survivor airborne ranger engineer qualified soldier and army strategist let's meet mr greg martin how you doing? Hey, thanks, Brian. I'm doing great. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Hey, Greg. I am excited to have you on. And uh, let's go ahead and get to know Mr. Greg Martin. Tell us about yourself, sir. So born in Holbrook, Massachusetts, near Boston. Um, grew up uh, with tons of energy, drive, enthusiasm. Did really well in high school as a student athlete leader. Went on to West Point, did really well there, Army Ranger School, and then my years as a junior officer, uh, same thing, you know, top ratings, really loved leading soldiers, loved the Cold War mission we had in Germany. And, uh, you know, during my spare time, I, I, I actually lived on a German farm, and I would run four miles back and forth to work to our little base. And uh, in my spare time, I'd run marathons, ran seven marathons under three hours, including a 236. And uh, and the reason I tell you this is that I found out just in the last couple of years that I have, I had and still do have a condition that's short of bipolar disorder called hyperthymia, which is a near continuous level of mild mania. And it gave me tons of extra energy, drive, enthusiasm, and all that sort of thing. Um, and it was a great advantage. Um, when the Army sent me to grad school, they said, Martin, get one master's degree. So I went to MIT and got two master's and a PhD. Plus, I did the Army's Command and General Staff College by correspondence. Now, that is not normal. That is really, really above the pale. But but uh, it was just, because... Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, it was because my brain, you know, my slightly sick brain, it was only slight at the time, was producing and distributing excess amounts of these powerful chemicals called dopamine and endorphins, which were giving me this boost in performance and enhancement. And that went on for decades. And it really helped me as an army officer, as a leader, as a person um, with all that extra energy and drive. But little by little, slowly over the years, it was inching its way up towards bipolar disorder. And the, a way to think about bipolar disorder is that it's a spectrum that starts low and then rises over time. And it's like uh, building a fire where you throw kindling on and then little sticks and then bigger sticks and then little logs. And so each time you have something of a bipolar experience or episode, it's throwing more wood on the fire. So by the time I was in my mid 40s, the fire was going pretty good. But the thing that really got caught it big time was the Iraq war in 2003, where I was a brigade commander in charge of thousands of troops. And we um, basically the thrill, the stress, the ecstasy of combat, it triggered my genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder 
and I had my onset at age 47 in the Iraq war. And basically it threw me into a very high performing mania where I felt like Superman, my brain was working incredibly fast and focused. And, um, you know, I performed, you know, fantastically well during that year of combat. But when we came back to Germany, the thrill of war behind me, I sank into depression. And the doctors, I told the doctors, I said, hey, I don't feel right. But they said, oh, you're fine. There's nothing wrong. But in fact, the doctors were wrong because I was in my first full up-down bipolar cycle in 2003, 2004. Wow. That is out. I mean, my gosh, to to have that and be in charge of a whole bunch of, you know, soldiers, that's got to be, I mean, something else. I mean, and I mean, everybody else around you too, you know, I mean, now did a lot of people start noticing, you know, a change or they just thought, wow, this guy, he is just motivated, dedicated, and, you know, God forbid he leads us in a march, you know? (laughs) So the second one, for the most part, everybody, you know, subordinates, peers, and, and superiors all just were kind of astounded by my personality. I felt like Superman, you know, I felt bulletproof, you know, pretty much fearless on the battlefield. And um, so it was seen as a real plus. And of course, neither I nor anybody else for another 12 years would realize that I was bipolar and that I was manic in Iraq. Um, There were things that started happening near the end of the year where I was like 90% of the time I was manic and really up, but I would dip occasionally into depression where I would be withdrawn, uh, confused, indecisive, but it would only last a couple of hours and then it would go away. Um, The other thing people noticed, and I found this out afterwards when I wrote the book, um, I interviewed as many people as I could. People said, um, I told them, I said, look, I uh, I had bipolar disorder. Here are the symptoms of bipolar. Did you see any of these symptoms in me? And one of the things they started to say toward the end of my time in Iraq was, you know, you were so intense and focused, but you were a little bit reckless. Like you wanted to go see every soldier on the battlefield. You wanted to see every single mission. And by constantly going outside of the wire and doing battlefield circulation, you know, with the roads full of IEDs and stuff like that, um, they said, you know, you were unnecessarily putting people at risk, whereas you didn't have to go see everybody. And we needed you, some of you, we needed some of your time in the headquarters, helping us to plan and manage and orchestrate the future battle. And they said, you never wanted to do that. You always wanted to go outside the wire. And that was because of my drive and motivation. And there is a good leadership aspect to doing that, but I did it to an excess. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, one thing you could definitely say is you led by example and, you know, anybody (laughs) in there couldn't really say no, no. What are you going to say when the, you know, the generals over here, over here doing everything, you know, like, uh, yeah, no, but right. I mean, the other part about it is, though, when you do hit a certain rank and stuff like that, do they do expect more, you know, not so much getting involved and being, you know, in the front line, so to speak. I mean, obviously, you do need um, leadership up there, but, you know, typically the general level, you know, you're not seeing so much up in the front, you know, in the mix of everything either. That's, that is correct. But, you know, I just, I felt like I had to go up there. I was drawn to go up there and see the troops and talk with them and see what was going on and find out if they needed more resources or if they're, you know, being taken care of. And, you know, I wanted to get eyes on the mission. I mean, I wanted to see how you clear IEDs you know, and, and be a part of the, you know, the real essence of the fighting and what was going on. Um, but that was something that people did point out to me later, years later, and say, you know, we thought we thought you were a little over the top. Well, the other part about it is, is uh, I can, from, you know, being enlisted, uh, you know, and stuff like that, 
I could say there is a level of respect, though, that, that comes when you see the general coming in and he wants to know. Because, there, you know, sometimes when we're in the midst of stuff and people are making decisions, you're like, gosh, damn, you know, have him come over here and see what they're asking to do. You know, but it when you're in there and you're kind of seeing things for yourself, it does also give you a better level of how to lead, too, sometimes in the direction of, which, you know, sometimes, like I said, there's only you get that kind of telephone effect when you get the information sometimes back at the end. But when you're sitting there and you're in, embedded inside of it, you get to actually see it all, you know. So there's got to be a level of the, the there's a I mean, I guess you got to say that there's a good and a bad with it all, you know, but there's a, also a level of respect that comes with that. And right. and also, you know lead by that's leading from the you know front not from the rear and right and that's something that i know as a marine i respect absolutely to the fullest because you know um a lot of times you know there's a there is that there is the there is a distinguish between enlisted and officers and a level of respect and what you know what do they do versus what do we do um type stuff but Right. When a, there is those officers, and I've had several of them, man, that want to be there and play with us. They want to be right there in there with it, you know. But there's also the the commanding officer who's like, "Hey, your job is over here, and we need you directing this way," you know. Right. But uh, yeah. So I mean, what actually drove you to actually join the army and all that stuff? Like, let's go kind of back that way and. Um, what kind of led you in the direction of army and then, you know, obviously being an officer, um, you had to go to school and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah. So ever since I was a little kid, I always knew I wanted to serve in the U S military in some capacity or another. And I didn't really care if it was what branch it was. I just said, I want to wear the uniform. I want to be a part of something, you know, way bigger than myself and my dad was in World War II and all my uncles served. And so, you know, and then I wasn't sure if I wanted to enlist or be an officer, but I did decide I wanted to go to college. And I found out about the service academies, which are, a, you know, they're really, really good schools, all of them. Um, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, Merchant Marine, they're all terrific schools. They give you a full scholarship. And then when you're done, you go out and serve on active duty in the force. And so anyway, I applied to West Point, got in, went there and really ended up loving it. And I mean, there were fantastic people, you know, my classmates, the program was really dynamic and challenging, you know, the athletics, the sports, the leadership and the academics. And so I went through West Point and then I graduated and I owed five years. So I volunteered to go to airborne school, ranger school, and then I, I, my, my branch was combat engineers, and I went over to uh, Germany and was a platoon leader and a, and a company commander and all that good stuff. And I, w once I started doing the leadership thing in the Army, I never looked back. I never even thought about getting out. It was just a given. I loved it so much, I was just going to keep serving. And so that's sort of how I ended up in the military and how I stayed. Yeah, now West Point now. How was West Point? Is that pretty challenging? I mean, it sounds like that's probably like a good. It, sometimes I guess I vision it almost like a four-year boot camp, um, <laughs> but you're you know, and, and you're you're probably learning and stuff as well. I got the the opportunity to work with a West Point grad. Um, she was my boss, and I mean, I had the utmost respect for her. She was, she was about four foot nothing. I mean, but just you know, smart. And uh, definitely was a great leader in, in when it came to the civilian world. But uh, I had so much respect. But, yeah, talk a little bit about West Point. Well, it's the way you put it is kind of accurate. Uh, you start off and you go in there and you go through cadet basic training, which is a form of boot camp, very demanding psychologically, physically, emotionally. So you go through that the first summer. And it a lot it a lot of people 
wash out during the first summer um, because, you know, they, they didn't know what they were getting into. <laughs> and then you start the academic year and, and you do, um, you know, four years of academics and it's, it's really covered everything, um, sort of the liberal arts with English, history, philosophy, psychology, foreign language. You got all of that stuff. But then on the other side of the brain, you got your math, science, engineering. So lots of calculus, mathematics, chemistry, physics, different kinds of engineering. Um, so you really got a breadth of, um, of academics. And then, you know, the physical education program, very demanding, very tough. Um, a lot of people have a hard time with that. Um, and then you're, in, you're constantly undergoing some kind of leadership training. You know, your first year, you are learning to be a follower. Um, and then the next year, you're in charge of a squad. Then the next year, you're in charge of a platoon. And then the next year, you're in charge of a bigger organization. So you're getting continuous um, increase in leadership responsibility. And then during the summer, you get to go do really cool things. Like um, you, your first year is the basic training. The second year you do cadet field training where you go and live in the field for two months and they would bring in soldiers, you know, really high speed soldiers from the special forces, uh, from, you know, the 82nd Airborne, the 101st, the 10th Mountain Division. And they would train us all summer long on the fundamentals of, you know, being a soldier. And then the third summer, you would go to things like um, airborne school, uh, ranger school, northern warfare, jungle school, and, and get that really kind of elite experience. And then the final year, you would go before you graduated, you'd go out to a regular army unit and you'd be a platoon leader in a regular army unit anywhere in the world. And you would actually lead that platoon for about two months. And so you got a real immersion in what it's like to be in charge of, you know, regular army um, troops as opposed to cadets. And then after four years, you graduate and off you go out into the army as a platoon leader. Now, so, you know, I'm a Marine and, and we had an officer candidate school and stuff like that for officers and stuff like that now. Is there the same kind of thing for the Army as well? You can go either route. Now, West Point, it seems like there's so much more benefit, I mean, obviously, that you're going to gain from that. And is there a rank difference? Do you come out a little bit of a higher rank because you went through the four years, you're edu you know, you're, you're little, you're obviously, you didn't just concentrate on getting a degree in something. You know, you also got, you know, training all the way through it which some of, you know, someone who went through OCS, they just went to school, got their degree, you know, it, how does that differ? Do you guys come out as a different rank? Um, no, not as a different rank. Um, there's three sources of commissioning. Uh, the biggest one is ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps, which are, uh, they are on college campuses. So basically while you're going to college or university, you're doing military stuff, kind of on the side. But after four years, if you meet the requirements, you get commissioned as a second lieutenant and you go out in the army and you're equal to, in rank and everything, uh, a West Point grad. It used to be that um, uh, a West Point was given a regular army commission, which is a higher level status in ROTC and OCS would get a reserve uh, component commission, but they've changed that now where everybody is on the same footing and competes equally. But ROTC is the biggest. Um, then uh, West Point is the second biggest source of commissioning. And then Officer Candidate School or OCS is the, is the third biggest one. And OCS is a terrific program because it takes, you know, really great enlisted men and women and gives them the opportunity to work hard and get commissioned and be an officer. So it's a good, it's a good balance between the three sources of commissioning. Yeah, I mean, and, and like I said, my experience from a West Point grad is I, I looked at her as a great leader. And I mean, you know, what's crazy is uh, she transferred in and she was, a, I was a project manager for a little bit there and she just, she just, man, I mean, she just ended up getting to the next boss level. I, I, I mean, 
who knows with her, she's probably going to be a VP or president of that company at some point. But um, just, you know, I mean, the amount of discipline she had and in, in knowledge and smarts and, you know, because it's the other part about, I think sometimes with managers, there you know, they, there's a whole, the people side and you got to lead these people, you know what I mean? It's not just sometimes we got to focus on a business, but these people that run your business are the reason why your business is the way it is. And the, you know, and I felt like she just understood that part about it, you know, and you can just see it. And she's also right. excelling. Um, good. But yeah. So, you know, um, I think we were probably in the same region around the same time. Cause, uh, when I heard you on the contagion effect show, that's how I found you through, uh, Mike and, uh, Eric, um, you were over in, uh, Iraq, I don't know if you were over in Kuwait before you you went into Iraq because I was I was over in uh, Camp Commando Kuwait and then when we busted in we ended up in Babylon Iraq I was with uh, First Meth Headquarters Group um, under Meth under the Meth um, but I was supply Bubba so we had a supply chain that operated out of Camp Commando Kuwait into Babylon we just were feeding that supply chain. Yeah, so um, my experience was we were based home based out of Germany, and we deployed around Christmas time of '02, and then we got to Kuwait and we you know got all our equipment off the big ships in um, in the big port there, and then we essentially forces kept flowing in from Germany and the United States, and we married up the equipment with the troops, and then we trained really hard in the desert for a couple months and got ready for the attack. And then we attacked um, from Kuwait into Iraq and we went up the Euphrates River Valley. Um, so basically up to uh, Talil Airfield, an Nasiriya, Asamoa, an Najaf, um, uh, Karbala. And then on, we basically kept fainting uh, that we were gonna come across the Euphrates an attack into the underbelly of Baghdad where the Republican Guard divisions were. But we just kept faking, faking, faking and fixed the, the whole Iraqi army in one place. And then we outflanked them. We went to the north and west and then did an assault river crossing up north of Karbala and then came slamming into their flank and basically destroyed them, um, it, which was really cool. And then we went from there uh, after really just decimating the Iraqi army. We went on to Baghdad International Airport and then downtown into the Republican Palace area. And then, you know, and the Marines were coming in from the other side. So the army forces came in from the West. The Marines came in from the East and pretty much decapitated the regime. Yeah, you know, uh, I got there January of 2003 and I was there as an early party, and guess what we were doing? Offloading the ships, bringing all the vehicles to Camp Commando, lining them up in their units, and then uh, they would come pick up their, the units would come pick up their vehicles and uh, head on out. Yep. Yeah, that was, um, that was pretty intense and stressful because you didn't know what the terrorist threat was. We knew that the Iraqis had long range missiles that we thought were gonna be armed with chemical weapons. You know, thankfully they weren't, but we didn't know that. So every time a Scud missile came in, yeah. you had to put on your, your, uh, oh, yeah. your mop gear and get yep. ready for you know chemical warfare. So yeah, that was pretty intense. It was a lot in March. That was all in March timeframe. Um, I was at Camp Commander, like I said, we took a Scud and, it, and the alarm never went off. But after that, we were a full mop suit uh, for at least a day or two. And then that day in particular, they were just constantly, and then they put the Patriot missiles over in the mountain area, and then they had them taking, a, taking it all out and stuff. But, yeah, just like you said, though, they we had no idea whether we were getting dirty bombs or, or whatnot. So they had uh, the NBC guys go out every time we had impact or something was pretty close. They would go out and check and make sure there wasn't any chemicals or anything like that. Right. Yeah, that was intense time. But uh, you, you want to? What's that? 
I was just going to say, we did a lot of really, really good, intense training and preparation in Kuwait that made the attack go so much better. I mean, you know, we had such a good plan and the plan was carried out. I mean, there's always things go wrong in war and the enemy has a vote and stuff like that. But for the most part, the attack plan went the way we planned it. Uh, which is really a testament to the planning and then the execution by the troops. So it was, it was, um, it was a good, it was great to be a part of that team. Yeah. The biggest story that I do recall coming out of there was the whole Jessica Lynch and that supply um, convoy getting, um, you know, taken over and, and then they took her captive. And I think there was one other person as well, but um, that was a pretty intense thing, especially I was in supply. So, and we were doing a lot of convoys back and forth. So that really was a big story for us over there. Yeah, that, that whole thing was uh, quite a fiasco. What an unfortunate situation. And then, you know, uh, because of those mistakes, a whole bunch of people got killed. Um, but it kind of points to the, the fog and friction of war um, where, you know, mistakes happen. People screw yeah, yeah. up. Yep. And, uh, you know, then there's bad results. And it's, it's, it's terrible but stuff like that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I got the, did you know, uh, general Tommy Franks? I think it was, uh, I got, yeah, the, so, oh, yeah, sorry. I got uh, no, no worries. I got the luxury of having him. Uh, he came over to camp commando, gave us our, our war speech. Basically, I think it was the day before war was declared or that day, but, uh, he came over and, you know, gave us a nice, motivating uh, speech. Yeah, so, um, you know, General Tommy Franks, uh, he was the commander of U.S. Central Command. So he was the overall um, theater commander. And, um, yeah, he was quite a dynamo, real fiery, um, yeah. you know, spirited kind of guy. Right. And um, so oh, wow. I, I I met him a couple times, but I, I can't say I know him. And I, I guess I could, well, we could say we work for him, because he was both of our higher level commander during the war. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now uh, let's go ahead and uh, we'll kind of start talking more about your book and uh, what you got going on with your book and stuff like that. Cause uh, I know a lot of people would like to hear about it and also about, you know, how you overcame basically bipolar disorder and all that stuff, you know, so let's kind of switch it up and talk more like about that kind of stuff. Okay. So here's, here's, here's my book. It's called bipolar general, my forever war with mental illness. Uh, the book is a very detailed in-depth story of my life. But so growing up in the army, and then my battles with bipolar disorder. Um, the book is doing incredibly well. Amazon keeps running out of books because people are buying them so fast. Uh, Amazon rated the book already. It's been out for a month. They rated it as a number one bestseller. Wow. Um, uh, professors in medical school are already using the book to instruct their med school classes and their up and coming psychiatrists. Um, it's really popular in, in being well, heavily read in the military, in the veterans community, in the medical community, and then in the general population, you know, the, the population at large. Um, because when you think about it, 20% of the world population are afflicted with some kind of mental illness or mental or brain condition. So 20% and the other 80% are affected because they're family, friend, work colleague. And so 100% of the population are somehow touched by mental illness or a mental health condition. So the book really applies to everybody, not just military, not just people with bipolar disorder, but, but anybody with any kind of mental condition. And then even if you don't have a mental condition, it's worth reading so that then you can help you know, other people and loved ones and family members and friends who are in that 20% with a mental condition. So anyway, the book is, it's doing great. I, I really kicked off my book tour last week in Washington, DC. Um, 
you know, we one of the big PXs near Washington. We sold out every every book in the PX. It was go gone by the end of the day. Um, we went to the Army, uh, the Association of the U.S. Army Convention in D.C. and sold tons of books there. Um, there were 40,000 people. So anyway, the, the book is doing well. Um, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or the U.S. Naval Institute Press. Um, but it, it covers my life of successful service where I did really, really well, as I described earlier, going from West Point to Ranger School, my years in the Army as a junior officer, up all the way up to two-star. Um, so very successful service. I get into that. I describe it. I explain it. So you learn a lot about the Army in reading the book and how the Army or the military works. Um, then I go in depth into my mental health crisis. And I touched on it, how my onset was in Iraq in 2003. But I want to come back to the mental health crisis. The third big element of the book is recovery from severe acute bipolar disorder. And then fourth and last is how I rebuilt my life and basically came out the other side of bipolar hell and have rebuilt a new life over the last seven years. Um, so that's really what the book covers. Um, I talked already about my army experience, you know, leading bigger and bigger units, um, more challenging positions, really loving to, you know, the challenge and being with the troops. But the mental health crisis, you know, so it was in Iraq 2003 where the pressure, the stress, the thrill, the euphoria of leading thousands of troops in combat, it um, triggered my genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder. And that's when my onset was. But again, it was unknown, undetected, unrecognized, undiagnosed. But over the next 12 years, my mania went to higher and higher levels of mania. My depression went lower and lower, plus with psychosis, which is delusions and hallucinations. And it got worse and worse until by uh, 2014, my brain pretty much erupted into a raging bonfire of mania, where I was essentially in a state of madness or insanity. Um, and I can describe what that was like. And so come back and ask me about that. But I, I was then, uh, I was so bad that over the top, out of control, disruptive, that my people in the National Defense University, where I was the president, they basically started writing anonymous complaints to my boss, the four-star chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, saying, hey, Martin has lost it. He's gone crazy. He's out of his mind. And so the chairman did an assessment and decided he needed to get me out of there. And he probably saved my life and my marriage because I could easily have had a stroke or a heart attack. But on, it was in July of 2014, I basically get a call, report to the chairman's office on Monday morning at 10. So I go in and I didn't know if I was going to get promoted, fired, extended in command. But he said, Greg, I love you like a brother. And he gave me a big hug. And then he said, but I give you an A plus for your work. You've done an amazing job. Uh, nobody could have done what you did. But your time at National Defense University is over. You have till 5 p.m. today to resign or I'll fire you. And I'm giving you the order to get a mental health examination this, this week. And so that was pretty much it. I was, you know, fired, forced to retire, and then later hospitalized. But I, I went and got three mental health exams, and all three gave me a clean bill of health. They said, there's nothing wrong. You're perfectly healthy, fit for duty. But they were dead wrong. And then over the next few months, I spiraled and crashed into terrible depression, terrifying psychosis. And then I went into the doctor and said, doctor, there is something wrong with my brain. I'm usually high energy. I have no energy. I'm withdrawn. I'm confused. I can't make a decision. Can't go to work. Everything is terrible. And I've got these terrifying delusions of my own death. And they basically finally pieced it together and said, okay, you have bipolar disorder and psychosis. But then I was glad to get a diagnosis, but I went from bad to worse. I spent two years in bipolar hell where all I wanted to do was die, uh, convince myself that my wife would be better off without me, um, finally got hospitalized. And then it took six more months to get on the, the right medication, lithium, which is a natural salt, 
which then after taking lithium for just a few days, pulled me out of depression, pulled me out of psychosis. So within, within three days, my two year long slug through bipolar hell went away and I started beginning to feel like my own self. And then that began the start of a seven year journey of recovery, which I'm still on because it never ends. It's a forever war. It, it, bipolar disorder never cure, gets cured, it never goes away. You have to always manage it like a chronic disease. So I'll pause there and see if you have any, any questions or comments. Now, I wanna, you were kind of talking about the physical aspect of it. Now, how does it physically affect your body as well? I know you kind of go through a depression thing now. Do you get spikes of anxiety? Do you actually feel, I mean, I know like anxiety, sometimes you can feel it in your toes and your fingers and stuff like that. Now, is that a, a pretty similar symptom with bipolar or what kind of physical symptoms were you feeling? Well, going back to when I was in full-blown mania, um, I felt I didn't sleep for almost three months. Oh. No sleep. My energy levels were through the roof. My drive, my imagination was running wild. I was talking for hours on a time, on time, you know, at a time. Um, I would forget meetings. I would forget events. I stopped doing paperwork. I frequently didn't wear my uniform. I'd wear gym clothes to the office. Um, and people would say, hey, aren't you supposed to be in uniform? And I'd say, I get paid to think, and I think better when I'm in gym clothes. Um, I had this grandiosity where I believed I was on a mission from God to, uh, and I was the Apostle Paul to transform the U.S. military. Um, I had religiosity where I saw the Holy Spirit come down multiple times. I saw demons attacking our house, and I put Bibles and crosses in the windows and doors, and I saw them come in and do a U-turn and fly away. Um, I would stay out all night and ride my bike or go on long power walks or lift weights. But when I would ride a bike, I would, I would have hallucinations that I would lift up off the ground and be flying. Um, so I was in, I, I was lucky. I, I, I could have been arrested numerous times. There are several times I could have been killed or killed somebody. Um, I was as high as a kite. The, the, these chemicals in the brain, when they go to excess, it's a much higher high than ecstasy or cocaine or anything like that. And um, so I, that's kind of how I felt. I did have anxiety um, attacks. I did have PTSD flashbacks to the war. Um, I did have hallucinations seeing people who I thought were my enemies in trying to resist the transformation where their faces would turn into rats or snakes, or they turn into these Saddam Fedayeen guerrilla fighters that we battled on the way to Baghdad. And, um, and, you know, that's pretty dangerous when stuff like that happens, because I could easily have jumped up and grabbed them and thrown them out the window or something, or, you know, smashed them over the head with a, with a chair, um, and they got arrested. Um, so these are some, some of the things I spent lots of money on stuff we didn't need. That was really pretty foolish. Um, and I, I, I felt a tenseness and an anxiety and a worry that people were spying on me and they were out to get me and I was going to get arrested, put in jail where I'd be beaten and murdered. And I had constant visions of being stabbed to death in jail where then I died on a cold concrete floor, gurgling in a pool of my own blood. I, I had that all the time, continuously. And it was very terrifying. And then I would have another hallucination where this invisible force would grab me and throw me underneath a speeding 18-wheeler truck. And it would rip my arms and legs and head off and throw them out to the side. And so what, what those were, were I, I learned later, those are called passive suicidal ideations. And they're different than active ideations because it's somebody else who's killing me. It's not me killing me, but a passive ideation can morph into an active one, you know, just like that. And then once you have an active ideation, then the next step is develop a plan and then you carry out the plan and then you die by suicide. So I was in very, very dangerous territory with my suicidal ideations. And luckily nothing happened. And then I got hospitalized 
And that was kind of state that sort of stabilized me in a bad place, but I, I, I didn't get worse. And then finally, six months after I was hospitalized, I got on lithium and then that began my crawl back up out of the pit. Now, so lithium itself, it, it literally made you where you were able to reflect back and say, gosh, dang, man, I, I really was not really, you know, I was really off my shit or something. How did now, did the lithium totally make you realize things? Because now you can look back at it and say that maybe you were, you know, those were, you know, visualizations that you were seeing back then, but it, how realistic too did all that stuff feel to you? I mean, did it feel like you were literally, or was it more like dream type situations? Well, what the lithium does is it, it goes into the brain and it's particularly effective with people who have bipolar disorder type one, which means lots of mania up, up, up. And then lesser on the depressive side, even though I went through two straight years of depression. Um, and so what the lithium does, it gets into the wiring of the brain and it kind of constructs a ceiling and a floor. And so the ceiling prevents your brain from bursting up into mania again. And the floor prevents the brain from going into depression. And so your, your thinking becomes clearer and your mood becomes stable. So you're not going way up and you're not going way down. You're pretty stable. Um, and, and it, but my life was kind of a shambles. I mean, I had to, in building a new life, I really had to rebuild my marriage, really had to reestablish relationships with family. I kind of had to figure out, you know, who am I? What am I going to do with my life? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just in my early 60s. Uh, I, I still have a, a lot of years in front of me, if I'm lucky. You know, what do I do with myself? So a lot of thinking and all that, all this stuff, all this really terrible experience with bipolar disorder was still fresh enough in my mind that I could remember most of it. And my wife and I and my sons and I, we would talk about it. And then after a couple of years, I got this tremendous urge to tell my story, to write it down. And I sat at a keyboard every day for a year and I wrote the story that, you know, ultimately became the book. But every day for a year, I wrote and I would give draft copies to my wife and kids and say, what do you think? And they'd say, well, you know, you forgot about this or you forgot about that. And you ought to put this in. You ought to put that in. And I did. I kept adding in. And then I would give it to like trusted advisors and friends and family members. And they would read it and critique it and ask lots of questions that really helped me sharpen and tell the story. So basically, it was a very cathartic, therapeutic experience that really helped me come to terms with my condition that, you know, how bad I had been, you know, my early life, how, how much bipolar disorder helped me. Then it went too high and it nearly destroyed me. And now, now that I began to recover, I was able to record and put down and tell these very detailed stories of what it was like to be uh, psychotic, manic, and depressed. And it's, it's all in the book. It's, it's really remarkable. The feedback uh, has been unbelievably positive. People just say the book is riveting. They can't put it down. Um, you know, medical doctors say it's the best book they've ever seen describing a serious mental illness or bipolar disorder. Um, and so um, it's, I, I, I would say that it's, it kind of came back to me in parts of it were uplifting, like how much fun I had as a younger officer and how well I did. But then it starts to get kind of scary and creepy and frightening and then ultimately terrifying when I'm in bipolar hell and all I want to do is die. Um, but then it's kind of uplifting when I pull, start pulling out of it and start rebuilding my life and make a whole new circle of friends and um, move to Florida. And I've got this new purpose, new mission of sharing my bipolar story to help stop the stigma, promote recovery, save lives. I mean, so it, it goes from really positive to really shocking, terrifying, frightening, and then positive again at the end as I kind of recover and come out of it. Well, you know, I think that's the unique part about your story is not a lot of people can come out of stuff. 
you know? Um, and, and I think that, that you just always have had that fight in you to begin with, you know what I mean? So if anybody was, is going to be able to pull themselves out of something, it's going to be Mr. Greg Martin, no doubt. Um, you know, cause there's a lot of folks out there that, that can't get out of, you know, the funk that they're in or, you know, and no matter how much help they get, it's sometimes it's a hard thing. And, and, and then to be able to reflect back at it is even a more of a unique part about it. Cause not a lot of people have that part of it. They don't have that reflections, the, the reflections to be, cause they're still stuck. You know what I mean? So it is great to hear, you know, that, Hey, there's other ways, you know, have you tried this? You know, obviously lithium worked for you and, and, and it got you to where you need to go. There could be other people out there that never even tried that, you know? Right. And, and or, or may not even have come to the acceptance level that they have a condition, you know? And right. I mean, did you accept that for yourself or was it me? Everybody else was pushing, Hey, you know, sir, you got something going on, you know, and, and you need to get dealt with, or did you kind of notice yourself and not, not only that, but how long were you married and, and your wife and family kind of start to be like, I think there's more to this than you just being motivated, you know? Yeah. Um, I would say w most of my time from 2003 to 2014 when I was fired and all that during, during that 12 years, most of the time I was manic. And when you're manic, you believe you're the smartest guy in the world. I thought I held the world, the key to world peace. I felt like Superman. There was no stopping me. I didn't believe there was anything wrong with me because that's just the nature of mania. But when I did fall into significant depressions, I actually went to the doctor three times um, between 2004 and 2011, went three times and said, hey, doc, I think there's something wrong with me. I'm really depressed. I have low energy. And it's, I'm usually high energy, full of motivation. What's, what's going on? And all three times they said, you're fine. There's nothing wrong. But they were wrong. They just right. were flat wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think it was largely because when they looked at me, they saw a successful senior officer you know, with high rank, lots of success. And, and so they couldn't see past the, the mask that, that I was a guy with a very sick, diseased brain. Um, but I will tell you, um, when I got, the day I got fired, um, in the next couple of weeks, I went in and got three mental health exams. And all three, they said, you're fine, fit for duty. But again, they were wrong. And so when they said that, I thought, well, they're the doctors. If they said I'm fine, then I must be fine. And so I didn't believe there was anything wrong until I went into that horrible depression a couple months later. And then I knew there's something wrong with me. I am, I've, I'm sick. And I went in on emergency sick call to Walter Reed and told them what was going on. And they, they then diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. And I said, thank you. Uh, I appreciate it because, I mean, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just know there was something wrong. Now I have a diagnosis and we can get to work on fixing it in recovery. So I was very thankful and grateful that I had a diagnosis. And I was never ashamed of it, never embarrassed. I didn't feel any stigma because I knew from reading and doing some research that bipolar disorder and other mental illnesses are physiological in nature. So the same way diabetes is physically real, cancer, heart disease are physically real, so too is bipolar disorder, depression, and other mental conditions. And so once I knew that, and, and part of what I try to do now is break this stigma by educating people, you know, if like, you know, don't blame me because I'm bipolar. It's not my fault. I didn't, it's not because I'm not trying hard enough or I lack character or I lack willpower. It's that I have a diseased brain that does what it wants unless I can get it under control and manage it. And so I, I felt I, I was actually grateful I had the diagnosis because then I could get after it and fix it. Yeah, I'm sure in some senses it was relieving to you like, OK, all right. And, and all the things that have, you know, transpired, 
you going back and forth with your command, all that stuff. Like finally, when you get that, but it, it's crazy that it comes to the level of you having to go in and basically say, yeah, you know, I think I really got something going on. And then for them to be like, all right, yeah, you do. You know, it's just crazy that it took that level. And when you're sitting there getting the confirmation from everybody, you're good, you're good, you're good. Yeah, man, that just, you, you're like, you know, whoever keeps, you know, saying what they want to say, like, well, they're telling you guys I'm good to go, so leave me alone. You know, and and I know I through, uh, you know, the Contagion Effect show, some of the stories you said, like, some of the decisions you made were pretty, you know, out there crazy, you know, uh, decisions that would make, you know, anybody like, wow, you know, he, this is definitely out of his character for sure. Like, I mean, we know he's already a motivator, but this is beyond his, his, uh, comprehension. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, when I went into that full blown mania, think about bipolar disorder, um, like as building a fire, where you start with little kindling, little dry twigs, and then little bigger twigs, then little sticks, big sticks, little logs, big logs. And every time, and, and so that works its way up the bipolar spectrum. Um, and every time you have a bipolar incident of whatever type, it's throwing more wood on the fire and the fire's getting hotter and hotter. So that by 2014 my bipolar fire went from you know a little little campfire to a raging bonfire and um i essentially went into a state of madness i was insane i i lost my ability to think clearly about events in the situation and i was out of control wow you know what's you know also unique though is now you can be an advocate and it it is helpful to have that other side of it, you know, because you can, you can relate and you can understand, I think, you know, what other people may not understand, you know, cause uh, when you don't go through something or you haven't walked a mile in someone's shoes, sometimes you will never fully understand, but you yourself being, you know, you're now could be an advocate, you know, for this part of it. And, you know, by putting out your book, it is a helpful way for other people out there. And it also probably there's family members out there that may have a, a, a person that they're dealing with and they just, they don't, they don't understand, but this can be almost a manuscript for helping people to start understanding. Wow. Okay. And then once you get an understanding of kind of what someone's going through, it's, it's easier to help them and it's easier to make things better because or find out what triggers them, what makes them go up, what makes them go down, or, you know, or how can we help them and, and lead them in a direction? Because at the end of the day, if that person doesn't accept it or even realize that they have a problem, they're not going to, you know, it's hard to get someone, it's hard to force a, someone to go eat or drink water, you know what I mean? Or even, you know, go get help um, unless they realize it. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's the intent. The reason I wrote the book was to help people. I mean, I had a very intense, dangerous, deadly experience with severe bipolar disorder. And, you know, a lot of people that go through what I did, they, um, they lose their marriage, their family, their career, their finances. They end up getting uh, addictions. They're homeless. They go to prison. And they are, you know, physically beat up and then they either are killed or they die by suicide. That's a very common outcome. I'm lucky that, you know, that bad stuff didn't happen to me. And, you know, my career ended, you know, very late. I mean, I was already over 30 years in the Army. So it wasn't like, you know, I lost my retirement or anything like that. So I was super lucky. And I want to share my experiences with others you know, with people who maybe have a mental illness, their family, their friends. I want to give, you know, doctors, here's what, here's what an experience of real bipolar disorder is. Here's what it looks like and right. help people to learn and understand so they can apply these lessons and be healthier. Yeah, and you know, it, it sounds like too, your wife could probably write a book and about how she dealt with it and supported it. You know what I mean? Cause 
that's the other part, like you said. I mean, a lot of these don't end well for, you know, and, and people don't understand it, you know. They can't understand it or don't want to get with it. It's even, it's you know, I've I noticed with struggling with PTSD myself and stuff like that and, and finding the right partner to who helps me through it, not is going to trigger me and, and, and exuberate the issue, you know. Um, but your, your wife, how, you know, I mean, obviously it definitely, how did she manage to get through all this herself? Well, there's a, she wrote a piece in the book. It's her testimonial as well as other members of my family. Um, so for her, you know, we met when we were in our early twenties, I was a Lieutenant over in Germany. I had, you know, that hyperthymic personality with lots of energy and drive, but I, but I, I didn't have real bipolar yet. That didn't come till a few decades later. So she was used to me being, you know, that high energy person. And as I started going up the bipolar spectrum, she, it was very slow, very incremental, inch by inch over years and years. So she never noticed anything really profound or different. But once my real bipolar started after Iraq, she did start noticing episodes and incidents that seemed out of character where I was acting, you know, bizarrely, you know, right. kind of crazy, you know, sort of weird. And she would, you know, call my attention to it and we'd talk about it and then the behavior would go away and it wouldn't be there. And so she thought, okay, it was just a one-off incident. There's nothing really wrong. He's okay. We're back to normal until I went in the spring summer of 2014, when I went into full blown mania, raging bonfire, she then recognized, wow, there is something wrong. But that was the exact same time everybody realized there was something wrong. You know, my students, my neighbors, my friends, you know, during that period when I didn't sleep for three months, it was pretty much out of my mind. Everybody knew there was something wrong. And then, of course, you know, I got fired, retired and ultimately hospitalized. So my wife, she, then once the real crisis started and I went into bipolar hell, her view, and she talks about it in the book, she said she just took it one day at a time, step by step. The, she called the P word for perseverance and just kept going forward, you know, never looking to, you know, never thinking, oh, it's just going to go away. Just there was something she had to deal with as I went through the process of trying to recover. So very positive, steady attitude. That's great. That's great. Um, you know, so are you uh, done writing books? Or are you, you know, is that just the one book for you? Or are you going to write more? Or? Um, I. What's next for Greg? Yeah, I have thought about writing more books, uh, or at least one more. Um, but I think what's happening is that Bipolar General, this book is just taking off at a level and a pace that I never really imagined. Um, it's like, I, I told you all about how it's doing in the United States. I mean, it's selling in Canada. Uh, it's now available in the United Kingdom. It's available in much of Europe. Um, a publisher from Brazil uh, called us up uh, last week and said, hey, I want to translate the book into Portuguese so it can be widely read in Brazil, which, you know, huge country. Um, and so I, I think that as the book gains popularity and gains interest, I think I'm going to really be on an extended book tour, going around, giving talks, giving interviews. Like I was interviewed today. It was actually a 17-minute interview on National Public Radio, which is, you know, big time, listened to by millions. Um, and, you know, I've been on TV a couple of times. I've got much more to come. So I, what I really think is going to happen uh, is... I'm going to be on this extended book tour probably for two to three years. I'm not going to have time to write another book. But if I do write another book, I think I would write it on the family perspective of somebody having bipolar disorder. Because two of our three sons also live with bipolar disorder. They're in their 30s now. Their onset was at 17. 
And it's yeah. been it's been hard. I mean, it really upended their lives, upended our family. And then I came down with it, upended my life, upended the family again. And so, you know, kind of a family perspective on, you know, how devastating bipolar can be uh, is, is the one that I think I'd be interested in writing. That's outstanding. Well, uh, Greg, I really appreciate you coming on, man, taking the time to uh, share your experiences, share your book with us. Is there anything else that you want to share before you leave? I would say, uh, first off, my website is www.bipolargeneral.com. Tons of information, lots of articles, interviews, podcasts. Uh, that's worth taking a look at. I would definitely check out the book because um, I mean, if you thought this interview, the podcast was interesting, I think you'll find the book uh, absolutely fascinating and riveting, which is how people describe it. Um, I would also like has any indications of a mental health disorder, go get help, get help, see a doctor, get diagnosed, because this is nothing to play with. It can kill you and destroy your family and your life. If you have a friend that you think is um, showing si troubling signs, talk to them, encourage them to go get help, persuade them to get help, offer to go with them to the doctor's office, you know, hold their hand and get them the help they need because it could mean, it could be the difference between life and death. The other thing I'll tell you is we talked about the downside of mental illness, how it can destroy you completely. The good news is if you get help and you get the right treatment and you manage these chronic diseases, you can live a happy, healthy, uh, purposeful life. And remember this, when I was in bipolar hell for two years, I had no hope. I thought I was going to die and that I and the world would be better off. And I really believed that. I, had, I never thought I would get better. But remember this, there's always hope. And if, in you, if you're a friend or a family member, extend hope and infuse it into other people. And if you're the one who's sick and suffering, just remember that there that lots, millions and millions of people have these conditions and they do recover. And so there is hope. And so you never give up hope and keep persevering. Um, that's what I would say. And I'm really a perfect example. I mean, I could easily have been in prison and killed um, or died by suicide, but I'm alive and I'm having a great life and I'm full of hope and I'm, I'm very happy. So just some, those are a few closing thoughts. Man. And they're great. And, uh, I love to see it. I love to see that you're have such a successful story and that now you can be an advocate and, uh, reflect on areas that others can't reflect on. It's great. But, uh, all right. I appreciate you coming on. And, uh, like I said, take the time sharing all your stories. I hope you have an amazing, uh, Week and I did hear you're going to be out here in California uh, soon. So hopefully, uh, maybe I can uh, drop by and see and get a you know take over and get a, you to sign a copy of your uh, book. That would be great. I would love to do it. My honor. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and let you go. It, it sounds like your phone's probably dying on you. <laughs> Kept you for a little bit. Uh, we're good. And I just want to close out, Brian, just saying thank you for your service in the great United States Marine Corps and and just say Semper Fidelis. Er, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. All right, friends and fam. Well, that's going to wrap up another great episode. Hey, go check out Greg Martin. If you guys just even go in. So let me show you something real quick. Uh, if you go in and just Google Greg Martin, bipolar general, I'll tell you what, you will find a lot of stuff and, uh, he is involved with a lot of things. So uh, I just put that into Google and it's and the whole page is that, you know, is all him. So, uh, go check out the Bipolar General, and uh, I appreciate you guys all tuning in.
please continue to do so like share subscribe all that good stuff i hope you all are having an amazing day don't let it kick your butt make sure you're out there kicking it till next time Arr.